0: The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a distinct joy to be with you today as we welcome our very special guest, Sho Baraka. Sho is a globally recognized recording artist, performer, culture creator, activist, and writer. His work combines his artistic platform with his academic history to contribute a unique perspective, a perspective that elevates the contemporary conversation on faith, art, and culture. He just released a book. The book's title is He Saw That It Was Good. And in this book, you will engage with art, justice, and history, and you'll learn from the powerful principles of historic movements and explore why it's important to cultivate your creative calling. I really appreciated the book, and I really appreciate this conversation. It is worth noting that we are getting close to our 100th episode, and for that episode, we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear what guests have moved you and in what ways you have taken steps in your own life as a result of the conversations we have been a part of together. If you would like to share your story with us, and I hope that you do, please go to newactivist.is slash 100, the link to that is in the show notes. But with no further ado, here is... Show Baraka. Your last solo album was put out, the narrative was put out in 2016. It was so good, and then So Many Feelings was 2018. A lot of us know you from your like prolific music history. I'm curious what your creative journey has been like in the years from twenty eighteen to twenty twenty one, where the releases haven't been, you know, as like, you know, every two years, but there's still a journey happening.
1: That's a good. That's a good question. Um, as you know, the world is kind of crazy, yeah. and uh, so I've been kind of consumed. It's interesting because when you live in such a um, polarizing society, sometimes that can either stifle creativity or that can uh, catalyze creativity. And I think it's been both for me. It's I've been I've been varying. I've been vacillating between. Um, there are moments when I'm just so distraught, like I can't pick up a pen. Like I just. Mm. I'm just, I'm all in my thoughts. I'm worrying about what the president's going to say. I'm worried about if there's, you know, what police violence is going to happen next. I'm worrying about um, the bickering, the polarizing views from my friends. I'm worrying about what this person. And so it, it, oftentimes it was paralyzing. Yeah. But then there were moments when, you know, I, were, I was inspired. So, you know, I released a single, but for the most part, I was spending my time trying to write down my thoughts for a book that I'm to release next month. It's my first book, so I wanted to be very careful with not only how I was saying things, what I was saying, but I wanted to make sure that it was authentically me. I just didn't want to write a nonfiction book. I wanted to write a book that has some creative elements as well. And even in those, that storytelling and that creative storytelling, uh, I wanted there to be deep meaning and truths that were coming across. So yeah, that's what I've been up to. And then uh, I've been doing a lot of visual Content. I, I studied television and film in school, and I've never lost that passion. So, writing screenplays, short films, shooting short films, and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Because you, I, I felt like I was doing the kind of like the book math. Because people may or may not realize this, but when a book comes out, it's not like you just finished writing it last week and Facts, then yeah. they had it to print. Like you finished writing this a year ago, yeah, and you know the whole process took at least a year before that. Yet. In March 2020, and you, you talked about it for a second, that all of a sudden upsprings on our you know Spotify playlists a new single, Their Eyes Were Watching. What like percolated and happened in March 2020 that made you release that single at that moment?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because in April and May, the world went to hell. Um. <laughs> right, this was before that. Right. I mean, that was yeah. the day Disney
0: closed. We Exactly. Realized, I mean, we realized the pandemic was happening at that point, but- yeah. But it was a couple of months before things really went went to hell. So what was happening? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, I think this was the the culmination of a lot of things that I was struggling with around um, racial justice, around how I feel racial justice in times paralyzes people who it's targeted towards. And if I can, I quote her in my book, but if I can also steal a quote from, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't, it's a very long piece, that's, but Toni Morrison talks about how racism is a distraction. And one of the things that I wanted to communicate, and for those who don't know who Toni Morrison is, Toni Morrison is one of the greatest novelists to ever, to ever write. She died actually the year before I wrote this. But one of the things that she talks about is racism as a distraction. And uh, I find myself trying to live that out. One, that it's not that we should ignore racism or that we shouldn't um, fight and push back against racism and evils of all kind. But when you allow that to, 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 to paralyze you, when you allow that to become your identity, because she goes on to say that people say you have no language and you try to drug, you know, prove that you do. They say that you have no creativity and you try to prove that to people. And and she says you, it's always something new. Right? And none of that is necessary. And so this song pretty much is saying, I, I don't have time to die. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't have time for... White supremacy, I don't have time for all of these things to kill me. I have life to live. I try to communicate that, like, though my eyes are watching, like I still have to live. And it's also an homage to Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God. Yeah, yeah, some of the same themes she's struggling with with feminism and women's rights in her book.
0: It almost felt like it was like the heat had turned up too high and you just had to release this. Like, it yeah. was like, there it is, there, like, <laughs> we, we got to hear this now. Um, so. I just think it's such a fascinating narrative to see you as a creative because the, the story is never that you stopped creating. It's that you have always been, it seems to an outsider, leaning into the most like necessary outlet for that creation in that moment, right? So for a time, it's releasing music and fully in that like release music, go back in, record. You know, promote, release, pr- like that whole cycle, and then you move into these book writing, visual years. I'm curious if your view of yourself as a creative or the role of a creative has progressed over that time.
1: Ah, I would say, I would say no, it hasn't. But yeah. I, what I will say, I've grown more comfortable in silence, if that makes uh, sense. I think there's a there's a pressure when you're young that relevance is is lord. <laughs> And you're all you feel the pressure to always have to be in the front and present. Lauren Hill has this. She spoke at this this school years ago, and she talked about uh, mastership and uh, mentorship. I think it was. But basically, we're always trying to be mastered in this mastership where we're, we we ascend the mountain and we try to remain at the top of the mountain. And the the problem is, is that most creativity happens in the valleys, uh, and we don't spend enough time in a valley that we live life we want to stay on the mountain and live on the mountain but the problem is, is on top of mountains nothing lives there you know and so for me i've gotten way more comfortable with being in the valley and saying like man allow other people to to shine to speak during these moments every time there's a crisis in america the world doesn't need to hear from me I don't have to create. I mean, just look at my body of work. I think I've been pretty clear about how I feel about particular things. Yeah. I'm going to create when I feel the unction to create, where I feel inspired to create, and uh, that doesn't mean that every time somebody says, "Hey, man, we want to hear from you," that's that's the time for me to create, you know. And so, I think as I've matured, I've grown more comfortable with silence and resting and also just being being more comfortable with my voice and who I am and my skin and understanding like there's there's other people that we can listen to. So then, at this point, you have a new book coming
0: out. And so yes. it has been time to write. It has been time to be what seems to be quiet, but it's not quiet. You're creating this thing quietly that ends up making a big noise because it's released in May. Um and in it, you contend kind of this paraphrase that you were created to help bring truth and beauty into the broken world. God made you with an imagination and a yearning for justice. No matter your calling or vocation, you can help shape a better world around you through your creativity. I wanted to dissect it a bit because you are clearly a person of faith. And to that end, you believe it would seem that God has programmed each of us to yearn for justice. Can you unpack that for us a little bit?
1: I think we all want to, you know, make what we feel to be wrong right. I just think that's just innately in us. I mean, obviously, there are people who would d- disagree, but I also feel in that same as I can talk out of <laughs> both sides of my neck. Um, also, feel we're, we're as humans, we're deeply flawed, and sometimes our desire to want things to be right can become a weapon. And this is the reason why, uh, if I can continue to stay within the faith element, yeah, um, we've seen churches who've been on both the side of doing great um, justice and then also doing great atrocities uh, is because there's a belief that someone has that this is what's right. And I think what I'm trying to communicate, if there's a if there's an overall thought, is that sometimes um, when it comes to justice, sometimes our idea of winning is not always winning. Sometimes dying on the cross in a sense of like Jesus dying on the cross, sometimes that's winning. And that's because what he's doing there is saying, I am willing to sacrifice my well-being for the benefit of other people. And sometimes to me, that's justice. Like That's an act of great justice and selflessness. And so, um, but I do believe that within us, there's something about our human makeup that we want to see what's wrong made right. Sometimes we suppress that. I think, and there and I and I think I try to communicate there are different elements and ways and we suppress that. Sometimes our cultural tribal makeup suppresses those, those yearnings. Sometimes entertainment and culture kind of suppresses those. And that's why you need a great imagination or great imaginators to create other narratives to show a different paradigm and perspective and say, oh, you know what? That's interesting. I've never seen it from that point of view before. And that that's a seed that begins to cultivate within you. And you're like, well, maybe. Just to be very clear, like I've had conversations with many of many of middle aged white people, who. Um, so, for instance, I, you know, I, I did a musical, and I'm still in the process of working on a musical that deals with the uh, 1968 sanitation worker strike, in Memphis. Uh, people know that Martin Luther King died in Memphis in '68, but they don't know why. So he was there to fight against, to fight alongside sanitation workers. All that to say we did this musical and there were dozens and hundreds, actually hundreds and maybe even a thousand old white folks who, who saw this musical. And afterwards we had a chance to do Q and A's with them. And a lot of them were like, wow, like I I had no idea that you can tie some of the stuff that was happening in 68, the stuff that was hap- that's happening today. And there's a correlation. And that's how I use my imagination and my creative uh, ingenuity along with other people to create this piece of work that tethers 68 to 2018 and 2019 and 2020. And so you can I understand how people kind of can get exhausted by doing the work because it's some it is exhausting trying to convince people that the world is broken and 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 we need to fix it. But this is why I do it because there are so many people they need to Need their, their imagination reshaped, if that makes sense. And so I find myself trying to do that in the form of art, through justice and, and faith and whatnot.
0: Just as a follow up to that, like part of this that you talk about is like knowing, knowing history and knowing your history and digging in and paying attention to historical voices that, like, that have been talking for a long time and using their creativity to affect positive change. I'm curious if you can give us kind of like a, a little homework list of who we should be going back and. Googling, checking out their book at the library?
1: I'm going to list three people. Um, The first person, I will say, you know, it's interesting because this is a person who lived in in a a very conflicting situation, Phyllis Wheatley, who was a slave, who at one point in time wrote from what I call like a plantation theology. And you can see the difference between when she wrote her, her poetry when she was a slave versus what she wrote when she wasn't, when she was a free woman. And I think the reason why we need to learn from individuals like that is because there are a lot of us who aren't necessarily slaves, but we're under a particular edit. We're under a particular um, overseer, if you will, that in a lot of ways restricts the liberty for us to express ourselves. And it's interesting for, for me to evaluate, like, what does it look like to create under this particular oppression, if you will, versus creating in a space of liberation and freedom. And how do I learn from her to like break free in the particular, you know, constructs that I live in right now? The other individual that I love is uh, Zora Neale Hurston. And the reason why I love Zora Neale Hurston is, uh, uh, think about her in the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance is known um, as this movement, and that started in the kind of like the late nineteen, uh, the tens, nineteen teens, and kind of flourished in twenties and thirties as a movement that put black excellence on display. But Zora Neale, um, rather than Propping up what people would call as exceptional is like the exceptional aspects of black culture, the exceptional thinkers and exceptional painters. Zora Neal used her exceptionalism to, to prop up kind of like the low society of black culture. So she went to the, the, the folklore, the, the deep woods of like, you know, Florida and Alabama to investigate in her anthropological way like to give dignity to people who were on the margins. And I, when I think about today, I think about who, that is the prime way to use your pen, like give voice to people on the margin. We're always talking about representation. The beauty is, is that there's always represented people, I mean, underrepresented people in underrepresented people, if that makes sense. And Zora Neherson did that on a way, in a way that was exceptional. She didn't I, she didn't spotlight extraordinary people, just what I like to say, the extraordinary extraordinariness in the ordinary, if that will. And so to see these ordinary people express very deep understanding about life, very deep truths about humanity, I, th- I say that she had a wonderful hermeneutic of people. And that to me was exceptional. And then the last person is George Washington Carver, who was creative in a different way. This is a man who um, literally had a very interesting, and you, <laughs> I read my book and our other books about him. A very interesting relationship with nature, and loved God, but in a way that a lot of people would would probably call, I don't know, pantheistic, or I don't know, they they would definitely not see him as as orthodox in his faith, and and I would say otherwise. I would say that he understood nature and human beings in a way that I think is the that is most necessary and not only that he used that to bring good a lot of people just know him as the peanut guy but he did so much more than peanuts he helped mahatma gandhi with his uh his hunger strikes he gave Uh, consulting, I guess you can say, to Thomas Edison and and Harold Ford. Uh, He was a professor at Tuskegee Institute. Um, He, I mean, he did so much, but even more than that, he assisted a Southern society that hated and loathed him um, by teaching farmers in the South and the government how to use different soil or plant a different soil, rather than using uh like cotton and stuff like that, because they were killing the soil. And so he said, "These here's how we can plant different uh, resources in order to save our soil." And to to see this individual though loathed and, dis- and 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 marginalized to use his gift for the benefit and blessing of other people, to me is just a, a wonderful example of creativity. But he was also a painter too. So these are just three individuals I think in a practical way that we can learn from, and that's why I think history is important. Um, oftentimes we, we're so pressured and enamored to progress and to move forward that we can leave history behind. But I believe true artists have good memory.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And I just do want to point out again, like there is a pretty exhaustive list in the book. So you just gave us a, a bit and I appreciate the starting point. Um, and we'll be in your book for the rest. You also talk about kind of this, and it seems as though you have this like presumption that every person is inherently creative. And so I see you as creative, right? Because you're like a professional uh, writer, artist, musician, right? You are creative. And and I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like there's, there's more of a sense that it's like we are all, there's a creative soul in all of us. First, do you agree with that? Is that right?
1: Uh, so I would say, I was loosely saying like, we all create. Yeah, okay. Um, and so that makes us creative in the true sense that no matter what you do, whether you are a uh, a teacher or a you know a stay at home parent, or if you're a painter, you're creating something. Like the end goal is to create a product, um, and I hate to say it like that, but is to create some sort of result or product in something or someone, and you're trying to create a better edu- a learner, a better a better educator. If you're a student, I mean a teacher, you're if you're uh, a, a parent you're trying to create better human beings or you know citizens of the world and if you're a painter you're just like I want to create something beautiful visual something that people can gaze upon and be and be enamored with and just have great conversations with uh, you know or maybe purchase and hang up in my in my in my household uh, I can show off to my neighbors and friends when they come over <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. but the idea is that we're creating and that creating tells the truth about us in some way. It, it it says what we believe about the world because we're transmitting ideas through that work. And what is very beautiful about that is that we're participating in the flourishing of the world. What can be very dangerous about that is we're also possibly transmitting terrible ideas. And so we have to be very mindful in our creating and our cultivating, no matter who you are, whether you're an artist or an engineer, We've all seen bad bridges. We've seen levees collapse. And so in that creative ingenuity, in that thought, like, how are you giving to? We've also seen very dangerous policies. We've seen how those policies affect individuals. And so in your creating, in your cultivating, right, how are you thinking about the well-being of other people?
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say we can be negatively creating as well. And I think of that, and honestly, like the second you've said that i think of like oh i know who he's talking about right and then i insert my own (laughs) i insert my own bias in there right Right, because right right right, right? and maybe our biases match maybe they don't but then i i found myself even as you were answering going like hold on where's my blind spot like what Mm. am i creating that's going into the world negatively i'm curious how you as someone that is just so publicly creative i mean there's you have so many of, I mean, your job essentially is to let us know what you're thinking. How do you even counter your own bias? How do you even counter your own blind spots? How do we do that? <laughs> I don't know how
1: to do I it. love it. <laughs> I me. love it. No, I think it's always doing self inventory in yourself. And so this book is one of the first lines and the first couple paragraphs of the book. I say, you know, we all want to think that we're the solution, but oftentimes we can be the problem. And uh, I go into a revelation early into that introduction about how um, I was blown away by a conversation I had with some African brothers while I was in South Africa about Shaka Zulu. And I was just like, wow, I've never thought this way. And so I think about myself, like how I've perpetuated, make racial, uh, I guess you could say stereotypes about people. I I grew up in California, um, huge Asian communities, either at my school or in my community or in my neighborhood I lived in but I've never had a up until my like maybe 12 years ago I never had a legitimate and I'm 42 so that should tell you it's a long time I never had a legitimate relationship with an with an Asian individual I just because I just had these ideas about Asian folks like they don't like me I don't like them but I'll appreciate aspects of their culture I'll I'll appreciate aspects of their you know their performance, I'll, I can I can accept their performance, but I'm not going to take the time to invest in an individual to actually get to know them. And it wasn't until I had a, a close homeboy named Jay Kim that I met, and I was just like, man, like damn, like I had some strong prejudices, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And how did those prejudices affect other people were around me? Like when I'm driving down the street, and and most of most of all my life, I've lived in predominantly black communities, and so. If you're familiar with black communities, usually you're familiar that there's some sort of, uh, you know, there's Chinese food places, there's hair spots, and most of those folks are owned by Asians. And that has left an indelible impact on me on how I interact with Koreans or how I interact with uh, Chinese people. And so those prejudices live within you. And so when you create, you don't know like sometimes that you're probably talking or creating from a bias that is unhealthy. And so you have to begin to check those things. And that's why I say, do a self inventory like man like who am i what do i believe what are some of the things that i'm saying that can be unhealthy and even today like if i can be really really honest like there are things about sexuality that i just don't understand and i'm trying to figure out like man what about this conversation that i hold is is hurtful not like hurtful in the sense that i need to throw out everything i believe about like my my faith but is there a way that I can truly like say, man, like I really want to be the individual who's hospitable and like be open-minded to the degree that I don't feel like I'm just affirming whatever anybody throws at me. Like I ju- I genuinely want to know like where am I falling apart here? And those are things that I do a self-inventory on a daily basis. Um Even justice, like, I am two minutes away from hating all white people. (laughs) Like, like, but, you know, I know for me, like, that's, I can't go that far. And so it's like, show, what aspects of what you are communicating and what you believe is healthy, right? And helpful to the conversation. And where do you need to take a time out? You know what I'm saying? And so those are the things, like, it's not just a one-time thing for me. It's like a daily reflection. It's a daily heart check to be to, to make sure that I'm not communicating things. And this is another reason why I rest, uh, to go back to an earlier point I made. It's like the world changes and oftentimes you have to evaluate, like we were talking earlier, you write a book a, a year ahead of time and there's certain things you say a year ago that you may not, fool, you may not hold to it 100%. You, you're like, oh, I still agree with it to some degree, but I would probably have changed the way I said that a little bit. Uh, if I wrote that today, and so even when I'm tweeting, or I, I just have to be mindful. It's like I want to be mindful of of how I say this and how I communicate this. Um, so
0: right, because you like by nature will continue to evolve. Yes, like, absolutely. you're going to continue to do the work, and like you will not be the man next month that you are today. Like a lot yes. of things will be the same, but. It's so interesting about that personal relationship piece too. I mean, I was just thinking about like every blind spot that I've ever discovered was directly related to the fact that I did not have a personal relationship with anybody that was sitting inside that blind spot, right? Like, and I was just like, oh, you just don't. It's it's so. Um, you got to know. You've got to know somebody and be able to step into someone's world and have that conversation.
1: Anyhow, and I'm even sure. in that, the one thing that I have I've been mindful of uh, is that there. Uh, I kind of alluded to it earlier. Is that one individual doesn't represent the collective necessarily. And so even there's there's oftentimes when we get comfortable, it's like, and this is where you hear, well, I got a black friend. Right. <laughs> right. Like, or oh, I, I got a gay friend. So, I mean, I can say this, you know, like, no, like that gay friend may have different views than other people. And so even in your, uh, your assessment and having conversations with this, you know, this lesbian friend you may have, or this, you know, black friend, understand that those people are situated in context as well. And- even in that, like you have to be mindful. Like, okay, the black friend that I do have is from Alaska, that's and right. so <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so, like, okay, you know, all right, cool. Grew up in a very conservative home. Okay, okay, you know, you know. So, voted for Trump twice. Okay, okay. you know, all right. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, they, they're definitely going to have different views from the individual who grew up in, you know, I don't know, Alabama, who's. Parents were a part of the civil rights movement. Who you know may have exhibited. I mean, may may have seen some. I don't know police brutality, et cetera. Like there's just different experiences, and and I think we have to respect both parties. And I don't. I'm not mocking the the, the black Alaskan who, but th- he's he's a different individual from the the black individual who grew up in Atlanta. Just like my lesbian friend may be different from the transgender version that I'm the individual I know in New York. Like it's and even in that, like there has to be some charity on both sides, some hospitality and how we have these conversations and understanding. Even with just
0: putting that on yourself, like even using you as a representative of a black man growing up at the time you did in California, I'm like, your neighbor may have a completely different experience. Absolutely. Like literally the person that's bed is 50 feet from your bed. Like totally, it could be a totally different experience. That was. Yeah.
1: It's funny because my my, let's not even go that far. We can go bedrooms. Like my brother, I have, I have three siblings and. To some degree, we have some very right. <laughs> we have some different views on things, and so um, you know, it, it life experiences change people. Where you went to college, the type of people you dated, we're nuanced people. If anything, <laughs> I just I'm trying to communicate in this book that good varies, uh, good evolves. What may be good today may not be as good as it was yesterday, as it is now. You know what I mean? And and so we have to constantly check and see, is this good for society? Is this good for myself? Is this good for the folks that are around me?
0: I keep thinking, I can't get past what you said earlier and that with, I guess, age and wisdom came with an ability for you to know when to lay back and to be Quiet and to be comfortable in that quiet. Not that you don't care, but to say like maybe this isn't the time. And I'm paraphrasing loosely something you said 15 minutes ago, so everybody just heard it, so they know <laughs> if I'm doing it poorly. But generally, like I, I think of the person on the opposite who is creative and burning, right? And they're in a time where we're in an age of brokenness, and it's we always have been, but but even now, like like the brokenness is more apparent, and the headlines are the headlines of injustice are rotating every single day. And there's a there's a weight that there's always been. And I feel like I hear from a lot of people who are in the activist space that the weight can be stifling. Mm-hmm. I I wonder how or what you say to the person who isn't trying to be quiet, but doesn't know how to say what it is they think they need to say, because it's all just so freaking heavy
1: and hard. I have a theory that and this is related but unrelated. I have a theory that 50, 60, I mean, this is not, this is nothing revolutionary. There are documentaries on this, but I have a theory that maybe 70 years from now, 100 years from now, we're gonna realize that social media was not healthy for our brains. <laughs> it's just yeah. like the way that doctors used to give rum and like to babies. like (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Rub whiskey on their teeth and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I I think we're going to realize that, you know what, maybe social media wasn't a good thing for society. Yeah, Um, Yeah. And I think part of the pressure is social media because we all now have platforms. And so you said one good thing got, you know, 300 retweets and, you know, 500 likes. And so now you feel like, oh, the world wants to hear from me. And so- let me constantly talk, and uh, I think that's—I don't think that's good for your your mental health. And so there's a there's a greater responsibility. Well, it can't be social media's responsibility because they're this ambiguous, you know, ghost that just exists, I guess you. But I think for some of us as consumers, we we have to give our favorite thinkers and um, rappers and activists like. It's okay to like to rest. It's okay to sabbath, you know what I mean? And not constantly say, "Hey, what do you think? What's your thoughts?" Because that gives us more pressure to have to feel like, "Well, it is it's necessary." Some of us don't have the self-control to say, "You know what? I'm cool with not speaking right now." The reason why I think it's necessary cuz I've I've yet to see, especially in my immediate circles and friendships, I've yet to see anybody burn the ends of both sides of the candle. Is that how you say it? I don't know. I the, think so. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 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 I've never seen anybody yeah. <laughs> work that hard and it end up well for them. Usually they end up in some sort of mental, some sort of serious depression. Mm-hmm. And this is why I want to go back to Toni Morrison. This is why I think it's so important for us to be advocates to fight, but not allow injustice to own us if you will. And I know that's a very easy thing to say in the air, because on the ground, it's like, well, show there's injustice at my front step. There's injustice here. But here's the thing, like one I would say, and I am no, I'm no clinician, so let, just know that I'm not speaking like this is this is just my thoughts. However you need to deal with your your trauma, your past trauma, I would say you got to figure out how to do that. I came to grips that I was a Black man in America like in my early 20s. And ever since then, I had an uncle who was choked out by police. I've been harassed by police. I grew up in California, so everybody knows how LAPD is notorious and uh, it's the surrounding communities. But in my early 20s, I, I think I did you know, s- some intentional and non-intentional work to reconcile like what it means to be a Black man. Uh, I think part of that work was going to a historically Black college at Tuskegee University, and uh, understanding who I was in America, and so honestly, you know, twenty years later, I am sitting here. When I drive past police, I don't, I don't have like, I don't. I'm not afraid. I'm not the kind of person who's like. Anytime I see a police officer, there's this, there's this anxiety that rises in me. When I walk into a room of old white men, and I may be the only black person, and these are, you know, I'm a, It's a boardroom, and these are individuals who have control and power I'm not intimidated I don't feel like oh I recognize that I'm the only black man in the room but I'm not walking in there trying to prove myself nor am I walking in there intimidated and I think that's just years of me doing the work and this is the reason why I think they're the young activists young people who are who have energy who are who are loud and and who are great at what they're doing need older folks around them because I'm in that middle space right now where I'm I'm not too old that I'm jaded and I'm <laughs> and I'm yeah. pessimistic about the world, but I'm also not young enough that I'm willing to be out protesting five nights in a row. Like I'm just I don't have that energy. But I'm here to cheer on the young activists who has the energy to be on Twitter all day all night, but I'm also heeding the wisdom of the old folks saying, look, you got to do work, also have to look at yourself and begin to say You know what? How can I turn my attention towards the people who really need my help, rather than always front-facing white supremacy? If that makes sense. For those folks who, um, and this is in my book as well, and I really don't think I did a good did justice in really over-explaining it, but there's been a comparison between, you know, black liberation and the Exodus in the Bible ad nauseum. Like, a lot of people have done it. I've found that I think that I've done something a little differently, and I, there's five points that I, I try to point out. One is, and it's alliteration, so here's the, the wannabe pastor coming out of me. <laughs> there's this act of liberation, there's leadership, there's land, there's law, and then there's legacy. We see this all in the Exodus, and this is what I think needs to be done in the black community. We need to be liberated, not only from physical oppression, but like mental, economic and social oppression. Like, how do you take people from being, I guess you can say, enslaved to liberated? Um, And they need leadership to do that. They need a law to do that. Like when Moses removes... Um, the Hebrews from the Hebrew people from Egypt, he just he just doesn't liberate them and say, hey, you guys do what you got to do. He says, look, there's some laws that you may have learned in, in, in Egypt. Those laws may not be helpful for us. We may need to have a new set of understanding on how we are to treat one another and how we are to move forward. And this is even in the idea of like business. How do we do business differently than what we've than what we've inherited? you can do those things, but if you don't have land, it's going to be hard. So when I say land, I mean literal land, but I also mean institutions. If we don't have institutions that we can build, um, then we're going to be here 50 years from now. I think the civil rights movement failed in that. I think there have been other movements who have failed, and and I'm not saying they failed holistically, but um, there were no institu- there were some, but overall, there are institutions that we need in order to um, catalyze these great ideas and these movements, especially if we're talking about economic freedom, if we're talking about social freedom, and even like political freedom, because what we've seen is the Democratic Party pretty much prostitute Black votes for many, many years. And so once we get past land, we there's, a, there's the goal of legacy. What are we going to pass down to people that's going to live another lifetime? And so... Rather than me spending my time trying to prove that racism exists or trying to point at racism to this individual, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give you my attention for so much for for an amount of time. But at the end of the day, there's some Hebrew people that I need to liberate, that need leadership, that need law, that need land, and they need a legacy. And that's where I feel that I'm trying to spend most of my time.
0: Well, my deepest thanks to Sho Baraka. Again, his new book is called He Saw That It Was Good. It is available now wherever you buy books and on his website, which I will link to in the show notes. If you have a moment, please rate and review The New Activist. It continues to help people find the show and it helps them to engage in conversations like the one that you heard today. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just head over there. Let us know what you think about the show and toss us five stars. It helps a great, great deal. Of course, the conversation that has begun here will continue over on the New Activist social. All of them, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram are all the same. New Activist is one word and our website is newactivist.is. A huge thanks to Propaganda who scored today's episode, his tour dates, music, merch, coffee, everything can be found at prophiphop.com. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Show Baraka, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Kaufholz. Take care, friends.